Hello, and welcome to the Georgetown Public Policy Review Podcast. I'm Senior Interview Editor Lucy Schmitz. Earlier this summer, I had a chance to sit down with Michael Tomaski, the editor of Democracy, a Journal of Ideas, and the Hewlett Foundation's Jennifer Harris, who contributed the article Philanthropy's Role to Democracy's Summer Edition. We discussed democracy's latest theme, neoliberalism, and the ways in which this economic framework colors policy and our political debates today. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Thank you so much for joining me today. I want to jump right in by talking about why democracy chose to take on neoliberalism in its latest issue. Can you give me a little bit of the thought process there? Um, Yes, well, economics and questions of how to change economic policy in this country are as central to Democracy Journal's mission as any single topic. We've probably run more articles about that under that broad rubric in the uh, 13 years we've existed than any other topic. And our track record of talking about things like this and changing the presumptions of neoliberal economics, supply-side economics, Chicago School economics, whatever one wants to call it. Our history of, of that goes back certainly to the beginning of, of the journal, but I think in a, in a concentrated and pretty focused way, certainly to 2010, 2011, when uh, Obama was president and when we were trying to make the case, you know, while there was a Democratic president, that you know some of these new policies, new new old policies, they're, they're kind of Keynesianism, really, but Keynesianism in, in new clothes, that, that some of these policies should be pursued. So, you know, I don't remember exactly how this package came about, whether I wrote to Jen or whether Jen suggested it to me, but we were having a conversation at one point that Hewlett was interested in this and we were interested in, in, in it as well, uh, and had been for a long time, so that's how it came together. You had many authors write about various components of neoliberalism by many names, as you say, and its impact on both policy and our society more broadly. Uh, Can you describe some of the overarching themes of the collection? Yeah, well, I I think the basic idea uh, of the collection is that we are potentially, unfortunately we're not quite there yet, but, but we are potentially at a at an important uh, inflection point in the history of this country in terms of governing or, or hegemonic economic policy because we we have seen now and we have now had in these last few years a pretty robust debate about neoliberal economics, supply-side economics, its shortcomings, the need for uh, public investment on a much broader scale, the way so many parts of America have fallen behind, uh, the the vast increase in inequality, all the problems that everybody knows about. Just today, as we as we speak here, as it happens, uh, on the op-ed page of the New York Times, one of America's richest men says, make me pay more taxes. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, so this conversation is uh, much more robust, I think, uh, and I think Jen would agree, than it was two or three years ago. So the point of the package is there's energy here, there's momentum here, and let's let's use that and 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 put some meat on the bones of, of what this new 
socioeconomics would be and of the kinds of institutions and organizations and movements that could help sustain it. Mm -hmm. uh, speaking of momentum away from supply-side economics right now, what do you see as a path forward away from that orthodoxy? And why do you think the country has been more seriously discussing our economic system in the last couple of years, as you say? In, in some ways, I'm not sure that that's... I'm not going to entirely ask the question, uh, but I, I do think that's a kind of, um, you know, departing point that it's not for me to opine on, on that question. Uh, you know, I really see my role and role of uh, philanthropy as um, about uh, kind of spreading our bets uh, across talent, you know, kind of people who are thinking about this and have made this their life's work across several different domains, uh, from the academy to kind of public intellectuals at big tanks to um, movement leaders and grassroots organizers, on through uh, business leaders. There's uh, many different kinds of actors that need to have hands on the, the affirmative alternatives to mm -hmm. and uh, you know, the role of the Hewlett Foundation is you know, really much more kind of catalytic and uh, you know, putting some, some early investments down and uh, seeing what happens and learning from there. Uh, but uh, so all that said, um, mm -hmm. you know, I personally, uh, a couple of things jump out to me and I think it's, I had to remind myself that we do well to not overcomplicate this task. It's not as if uh, the original neoliberals, uh, Hayek and, and Frank Knight Milton Friedman and their contemporaries had uh, ideas that were perfect by any stretch, um, and certainly their ideas evolved considerably over the 40 or so years that they were um, you know, intellectual partners. Uh, but um, right now, I think uh, contributions like Tomal Piketty, uh, noticing that as long as you pan back and look at the right stretch of history, that returns to capital uh, tends to outpace returns to labor income, mm -hmm. uh, which is uh, exactly the opposite of what the Simon Kuznets said in, in the middle of the last century, looking at the kind of snapshot of the 30 or 40 glorious years of the, the 20th century. Uh, it looked as if uh, the, the way of things was to tend towards um, convergence rather than divergence of, um, of incomes. And, uh, and once you agree that there's a natural tendency towards inequality, mm -hmm. mostly due to returns to capital, then things like more robust redistribution, uh, wealth taxes, as well as income taxes that are closer to cultural norm, as well as things like redistribution, all of the sorts of policy interventions that um, uh, grow in the direction of starting gain equality become, you know, the, the obvious place to start. Mm -hmm. um, the, the question should be, why aren't we having a pretty uh, assertive conversation about these things, rather than uh, the onus being on those who, who do want these things to happen? Um, and uh, I think that there's uh, always been a moral component to massive societal shifts in, in understanding and explaining the world. That was true with uh, neoliberalism, free minds, free markets, and mm -hmm. it needs to be true here. And so. That takes me to the work of people like Elizabeth Anderson, philosopher at Michigan, and Danielle Allen uh, at Harvard, 
when a lot of their writings are focused on different ways of reconciling as liberty and equality and uh, reclaiming concepts that uh, to most of our ears sound fundamentally conservative, things like property rights, recognizing that uh, when the founders you know, put those in the foreground of their efforts in building this country, that was actually an intervention that was quite pro-labor, pro-worker. It was about owning the fruits of your labor, mm-hmm. and that you know, somewhere along the way, probably due to things like the Industrial Revolution, when um, uh, labor became kind of intermediated by Speaking of the connection between these ideas and policy questions around inequality, how do you think uh, candidates in 2020 will address these issues that might not have been politically viable 10 years ago in a primary while trying to appeal both to people who agree that there should be a shift away from supply-side economic ideology and those who are more moderate. How do people who want to transform those ideas into policy walk that line? Well, generally speaking, uh, politicians, presidential candidates, they come out with a lot of proposals and specific ideas. Where they're sometimes less compelling is on the whole like overarching narrative of their grasp of history and how we got into the situation that we're in. They all talk about that to varying degrees, but some of them talk about it pretty well and some of them don't talk about it that well. Mm-hmm. We can we can infer from the policies they put forward where they stand and what they think about these questions. And obviously, you know, uh, I mean, Elizabeth Warren stands out so far, as everyone else has said, mm-hmm. with uh, the number of proposals that she's put forward. And uh, the, I think that the seriousness of them from a policy perspective, whether one agrees with them or not, they're, they're serious and they're thought out and they're, and they're worked out and, and they're interesting. Mm-hmm. And they add up to a vision that is obviously, you know, very, very different from from uh, the kind of economic presumptions that we've been living under for the last forty years. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's mostly what candidates do. I'm always interested to hear them, just personally, uh, talk about that bigger picture stuff, describe the overarching narrative, uh, because I want to hear how they understand reality. Mm-hmm. Uh, because their understanding of how we got here is obviously going to have a big impact on their ideas about how we get out of here. Now, weirdly enough, the best critique of what's happened to the American economy over the last 40 years that I've heard so far from a candidate has been not from one of the you know top-tier candidates, but was from Michael Bennett, mm-hmm. the Colorado senator who probably like barely qualified for the polls or for the debate. He's going to be way off to the side of the stage. And you know, I think it's safe to say he's probably not going to be the next president. And you know, maybe there are other good reasons why that's so. But I sat down with him and his analysis of what happened to the American economy over the last 40 years since Milton Friedman's precepts you know, sort of gained their foothold was just spot on. It's really good. So I, I like to hear more of that from some of these folks. But we are hearing in the meantime a lot of interesting, specific policies. Yeah, 
um, and I'm sure we'll be watching out for him in the debate now. I just a, a postscript on that. I think um, it's also the moment of ferment that is that is made possible by not just the candidates, although that's obviously where the media focus is and should be. But um, you know, yesterday I was talking with uh, Reverend Barber, uh, who led the Moral Mondays movement in North Carolina and is now um, taking a lot of the lessons learned of that and to turning it national into what he calls the Poor People's Campaign mm-hmm. and, uh, and tells a story about how uh, often what begins as racialized gerrymandering or suppression targeted at minorities, the people who do that, uh, once they get in office, use their power to hurt poor white people. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and uh, that is a message that I think is increasingly resonating and as yeah, you say, parts, parts of the country that are traditionally progressive as well as parts that are more moderate. Um, and you know, I think we fool ourselves to think that race won't once again be activated at the foreground of uh, the 2020 election. And so uh, the more that we can have a, a message that is grounded in ideas, but uh, resonates across the different pockets of the country and into different person identities, maybe unites the plight of um, the poor white folks and minority groups which have a lot in common so much of the the ascendance of neoliberalism was uh, racially coded it was Mm -hmm. about um, free stuff that uh, was kind of uh, put in dog whistle language to mean uh, public goods that were really earmarked for minorities for black and brown people in this country. Which we're definitely Recently, when you look at and, and taking the back to North Carolina, the fight over Medicaid expansion there now, the, 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 the people who are leading that fight are increasingly finding Republicans who are, you know, the, the would-be beneficiaries and um, mm-hmm. figuring out ways of telling that story mm-hmm. that is uh, unifying. And busting the myth of, you know... Because whatever else the kind of the, the successor to new liberalism shakes out as, it's going to need to involve a more active role uh, of government, and uh, hopefully that means kind of a, a, a reclaiming of a lot of domains of our economy to genuine democratic accountability. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's, people understand that it is we who shape markets, and that these are not some kind of it's naturally pre-political institutions that uh, we have the ability to. to really get inside of, of markets and, and through regulation and just uh, often, you know, creating floors and taking things out of markets entirely, decide uh, where where markets make sense and what we want them to look like, as well as uh, what goods and provisions we think ought not be subject to market allocation. Mm-hmm. And even the idea of branching away from free markets for everything seems sort of revolutionary when when there's so much rhetoric around that being the way the economy works for so long and as you say sort of that ideology being perceived as preordained this is ultimately about very practical problem solving figuring out what problems we want to go after as a society and developing the building blocks uh, for a solution whether that's climate change where the science might have been 30 years ago a price on carbon alone will not solve it for us we need things like more active government regulation and massive public investment uh, mm-hmm. or quality public education where you know we've seen the results of market experiments and school choice for 
30 years and it's not pretty. Uh, it's, it's clear that beginning with those problems and developing the, the ingredients for solutions is a much better way than being ideological about certain beliefs on uh, needing to default reflexively to markets. In your article, Philanthropy's Role, you argue that philanthropists should focus on the larger uh, structural or intellectual issues that tie together many particularly hot-button issues. You mentioned the minimum wage and climate change. But how do you think our philanthropists can be incentivized to fund ideas in this larger movement rather than focusing on issue-based campaigns? Uh, yes, this is um, the kind of waking preoccupation of my job where I spend most of my hours uh-huh. uh, you know, <laughs> persuading uh, colleagues to come along from other foundations because... Um, well, actually, if you go back to the history of the role that conservative foundations played and bring about the rise of neoliberal ideas, the amount of money uh, wasn't huge, uh, but it was probably, I think, at least arguable that return on investment-wise, it's among the most effective philanthropic investments there are. Look at the role the say the Ola Foundation played in creating things like law and economics, which went on to colonize so much of the legal academy, give us a lot of the ways of decision-making that has um, now gotten to bloodstream courts as one example. Um, but it probably does outstrip the resources of, of just one foundation, including the one that I work at. Mm-hmm. So you know, it, it is a, a fair amount of evangelizing to colleagues at other foundations. And we've had a pretty positive reception in the years so that we've been at this. Oh, great. There is a, a greater uh, recognition among foundations that uh, the, the same approach that they've taken for decades uh, hasn't necessarily unlocked the kind of progress that they would hope for. And so there is a need to attend to the, as I say in the article, the kind of intellectual soil that all of these problems are. Can you describe a little bit the balance between issue-based advocacy and investment in these ideas, this larger idea of moving away from neoliberalism, uh, especially considering that some might argue that neglecting those specific issue-based campaigns could cause progressive policies to deteriorate while we wait for a larger movement? Sure. Uh, so I think that we'll see again. I have a massive caveat to say that I've only mapped this uh, 12 or 15 Oh, sure, sure. Uh, so <laughs> I'm, I'm quite, quite cognizant of the limitations that come with that. But um, I'm hoping that there are uh, ways to go at the kind of tectonics of neoliberalism, a lot of the assumptions that are also points of national conversation right now that are uh, quite salient in uh, the public discourse. So mm-hmm. uh, I look at things like antitrust, which has plenty to say back to neoliberalism at the level of theory, but is obviously uh, one of the hottest topics we, we see in about the major uh, keeper's record and journals like democracy. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, so too with corporate governance issues, as well as the need to revitalize worker power, there are kind of monetary policies, well, kind of four or five issues like that that are generated both upstream as the level of theory as well as downstream, meaning people actually care right now. Um, and so you can do a bit of both. If you care about public care, you should care about the degree of concentration in the healthcare industry and hospital consolidation. Groups uh, can do double duty, sort of. I think that's one answer. And the other the other answer is that there 
hopefully are ways that especially the, the more investing uh, we get in partners, uh, the lower the ask is in terms of actual dollars and cents. So that would be kind of zero sum to uh, programmatic work. What do you see as democracy's role in the shift from individual movements and disjointed campaigns to uh, a shift in ideas away from neoliberalism? Yeah, well, I mean, we're, uh, we're, our, our name is Democracy Colon Eternal of Ideas, so, uh, and we, we were named that, not by me, but by the founding editors who are friends of mine, for, for a reason. And the notion is that the journalist started in the aftermath of the 2004 election by Andre Cherney and Ken Bear, who felt at the time that, that progressives, liberals, were, were losing the battle of ideas. And back then, if people cast back to those days, the neoconservative foreign policy impulse, I mean, we, we, one may you know, have a lot of adjectives that one might call it, but it certainly was for better or worse, a, a set of ideas. Um, and similarly, on domestic policy, the right, going back to Reagan's time, built an infrastructure, uh, as Jen was saying, of foundations that supported policy and idea generation. And, and that had kind of been lost on the progressive liberal side. So Ken and Andre uh, started this journal as, as, the, as the sort of central go-to place for new ideas and, and uh, across a, a very broad policy spectrum. And one of the things, one of the founding principles about the journal that, that I have always liked a lot is that you know, their belief was these ideas don't have to be like realistic and we don't want the articles to say uh, how this is going to pass the Senate. is different about now, about this moment, which makes a shift away from supply-side economics feasible when it hasn't been in the past.
that I have to say, you know, Trump showed us that to some extent too, because he, he showed people that that you know there was uh, an audience in in his half of America, and let's you know, I mean, obviously his appeal was you know to some extent, perhaps to a considerable extent, racial and, and all that stuff, and not economic, but the, it was economic to some extent. And uh, whatever extent you think that was, mm-hmm. and and that showed too that there are some people out there who I think are are potential partners in this project. If you know, by no means all of Trump voters, by no means a majority of Trump voters, but some people, and we don't need all of them. Mm-hmm. We just need some of them. Thank you, Jen. Was there anything you wanted to add there? Just kind of uh, highlight and, and, and echo what Michael said. Uh, greater openness to rethinking fundamental tenets of economic governing philosophy on both sides of the political aisle that I've seen in my lifetime. And then just in conclusion, there's a question Georgetown Public Policy Review likes to ask all of our guests. Are there any books or papers or other media, including podcasts and including your own journal, that people who enjoyed our conversation today and want to learn more should take a look at? Well, obviously I'll recommend Democracy, a journal of ideas. Jen mentioned a lot of the, the thinkers a few moments ago who are doing the most important work in this space. I'll mention a couple of journalists whom I read and learn from. Uh, David Leonhardt at the New York Times and Catherine Rampell at the Washington Post. They both seem to me to do quite good, consistent work along these lines that we're discussing. Okay, thank you. And um, we'll link all of these suggestions in the show notes. I can say it because he sort of wouldn't. One of the best titrations remnants of a potential story because ultimately all of these ideas have to be together in a clean story um, that I've seen is um, courtesy of uh, one Michael Tomasi and mm-hmm. column New York Times probably a month ago, Michael, is that fair? Um, and yeah, we but... were um, jumping off of a weekend interview that Pete uh, Judge gave uh, where the question was, are you a capitalist? Are you a proud capitalist? And um, uh, he reached for the idea of democratic capitalism uh, kind of warned of what happens to capitalism when you don't begin with democracy, let the democracy fail. And uh, Michael kind of goes uh, from there to a lot of the key ingredients in coherent alternatives. So, you know, it was important to resolve. So, I recommend that as required. Oh, God. <laughs> Thank you for listening to my conversation with Michael Tomaski of Democracy, a Journal of Ideas, and Jennifer Harris of the Hewlett Foundation. If you enjoyed our conversation, please subscribe to keep an eye out for more podcasts with new and interesting guests in the fall. And please visit the Georgetown Public Policy Review online at gppreview.com to read articles on a wide range of policy issues. Thank you.